You're listening to the Product Podcast by Product School. Cool. So, uh, hello everyone. I'm Tyler. I'm a director of product at Reddit. I appreciate you all coming out to talk today. Director of product is what I do, uh, but I want to talk to you mostly today about how to do it. I'm sure people have mentioned to you some variation on the theme that product manager is the job that has all the responsibility and accountability and none of the authority. You're not in charge of anyone as a product manager. You're just in charge of the problems, not the resources to solve them, which means to be effective as a product manager, you have to be more than right. You also have to be convincing. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit today about how we form beliefs and how you can structure your messaging so that it is more believable and so you will have a greater time influencing your teams to go the direction that you think is strategically valuable for your product. We don't have time today to go too deep into the science, but if you're curious to learn more, essentially all of the psychology that I'll be talking about is summarized in the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which is also one of the best books I've ever read, and I can't possibly emphasize enough how much you should all read it. But we'll try and give you the gist, gist of it here. The central conceit of Thinking Fast and Slow is that our psychological experience is sort of comprised of two separate subsystems. System one is a heuristics-driven system, it's fast, it's cheap, it's effortless, but it's also error-prone, and it always has an answer even when it probably shouldn't. System two is more precise, more effortful, it's more thinking how we think we think, the thought that takes place at the speed of the voice in your head, but it is effortful, and it's not something we can always muster, especially when we don't have the energy or the attention level. So... There's a lot of differences between System 1 and System 2. We don't necessarily understand them perfectly yet, but one thing that I do want to emphasize is that this is not pop psychology. This is a real and hard scientific fact that you can observe in the lab. And the way that we know that it's real is, if I give you a task to do that will invoke your System 2, a bunch of things will happen that are physically observable. Your pupils will dilate, you will start to perspire, your heart rate will rise. There are a bunch of ways in which we can see when you are thinking hard, because thinking hard is literally hard work. So these systems are very real. System one, as I mentioned, is the system that thinks at the speed of the voice in your head, and it's the way that most of us think we think, but it's actually the minority of your cognitive experience. The vast majority of what's happening in your brain is happening beneath the surface of your notice, and it's happening in more or less the way that a child thinks, in sort of black and white certainty, even when they don't necessarily have all the information. There's a lot of differences between these two systems, but the one that's most important for our purposes today is the last one. Which is that, essentially speaking, System 1 is the seat of confidence in beliefs, and System 2 is where our doubt and skepticism emerges from. Which means, when you construct an argument or a message for your audience, it's not enough to be logically correct. You need to speak to System 1, or your message will feel hollow. If you've ever had the feeling that you know someone is wrong, even though you can't find any flaw in their argument, but you just don't believe them anyway... That's the feeling of someone having spoken to your system two, but not having spoken to your system one. Most of us in this industry have an automatic tendency to bias towards system two. We're sort of trained to think logically and to value logical thinking, which means we tend to neglect system one. So I'm going to basically focus the entirety of my talk today on how to address system one. To be clear, addressing the system one is not enough. You need to also have a logically sensible argument. People will be evaluating your argument logically, but most of us actually are already paying attention to that. All right. So let's talk about cognitive biases. Uh, in particular, even more than any of the specific cognitive biases that I want to talk about today, there's one thing that I want you to understand, which is that you are not immune to cognitive biases, even if you understand them. And the great analogy for that is optical illusions. Now, you could be a scientist who studies optics and who understands how the eye works and who understands optical patterns in the brain perfectly. You can explain why this causes the snakes to look like they're moving. But even if you understand it perfectly, the snakes still look like they move. 
because that's how your eyes work. You can't outsmart them. Similarly, you can't outsmart your brain, which means understanding all of these cognitive biases can cause you to prepare for them, to adjust for them, but it cannot cause you to avoid them or to suppress them. And the same thing is true of your audience. This is just how your brain operates, which means you can't neglect it, even if it feels kind of illogical. All right, there are as many cognitive biases as there are ways of thinking, but I think there are five that are specifically worth calling out in the context of a business uh, conversation. Availability, anchoring, representation, coherence, and framing. So first off, availability, loosely speaking, is our tendency to believe things are true in rough proportion to how easy they are to imagine. If something is easy to picture, it seems more plausible. And if it's difficult to picture, it seems less likely to be true. And this kind of comes up in a bunch of different ways. People find things to be more believable when they are printed in bold font. Bold font is easier to read. You spend less of your energy trying to scrutinize what's being read and more of it just experiencing it, which means your system too doesn't get as activated, which means you find things more believable. Generally speaking, people find sayings, aphorisms, more believable when they rhyme. The reason that rhyming makes things more believable is that it's easier to remember them. When things are easier to retrieve, they're easier to believe. The less effort your audience is spending in consuming and understanding your message, the more plausible they will find it, because every incremental unit of effort that they spend is all spent evaluating and testing doubts. If it feels effortless, it will feel true. Another great uh, aspect of this is that people are more likely to believe things when they're in a good mood. The classic example of this is if you look at uh, parole hearings, judges are much more likely to grant you parole immediately after lunch than they are immediately before. Because when you are full, you are happy, and when you are happy, things seem generally okay. So if you have to schedule an important meeting where you need an important person to make an important decision, try and schedule it immediately after as opposed to immediately before lunch. Availability is why advertising works. When you see a message a lot, and it's communicated to you clearly, over time, you'll start to believe that message. It's also why we tend to over-evaluate certain risks relative to others. So a terrorist attack is very vivid and emotional, and you've seen pictures of the effects of it, and so it's very scary. On the other hand, climate change is very diffuse and very sort of abstract, and therefore doesn't create as much of a vivid picture, hard to take as seriously. That's, why we, that's how we're evaluating risks, is we're sort of picturing them, and the crispness of the picture is the saliency of the threat. This also works in reverse. This is where not-invented-here syndrome comes from. If you've ever gotten the feeling that like, something was unfamiliar and therefore felt bad or worse, that's a, essentially availability bias in working in reverse. And a really easy way to see this in yourselves is, picture how you feel about the kinds of insects you saw in your backyard growing up, and picture how you feel about insects you've seen in nature documentaries from other continents. The insects you grew up with are, eh, you know, they might be a little gross, but they're fine. But the insects from other continents are scary and weird and disgusting. And that's because of availability bias. Availability bias makes a lot of sense when you consider the fact that your brain is, to a first approximation, a threat detection engine. Its job is to keep you alive, and the main way it does that is to look for things that will stop you from being alive. Everything that you've seen in the past has, by definition, not killed you. Which means it's a little bit safer than things you've never seen before. So every single time you encounter an idea, it becomes a little bit less likely to kill you in the sort of Bayesian sense, which means you're going to find it less threatening. The first time you see an idea is the time you will be the most hostile towards it. Anchoring is our tendency to over-index on the first value that we considered when we were uh, estimating an unknown value. 
So a really classic example of this is in marketing. You see a lot of places where people will tell you one price when really it's another. It's four easy payments of $19.99 rather than $80, right? The reason that this works is because System 1 doesn't evaluate the quality of evidence. It takes it at face value and then operates from there. And then System 2 wakes up and adjusts System 1's estimate. But adjustment is effortful, which means we're more likely to do too little adjustment than too much. So if I give you an anchor point, your System 2 will kick in and drag that anchor point towards the truth, but it won't drag it far enough, which means the anchor point will influence your final guess. Probably more than you think. In lab experiments, generally speaking, anchoring effects are around 40 to 55% of people's guesses. It's a huge chunk. Also, anchoring effects stay if you teach people about what anchoring is. Anchoring effects also happen if the anchoring number is completely random. So I could explain to you how anchoring works, spin a wheel that shows a random number that you know is random, and then ask you to guess the number of countries in Africa, and the random number that showed up would be about 40% of your guess. So when you're showing people a number in the context of any kind of estimate you want them to be making in a business sense, make sure that the first number you show them is one that's flattering to whatever point you want to make, because it will be really difficult to erase that first number and write in a second one. Whatever the first thing they consider will carry much more weight than it should. This isn't just for numbers, though. This is also for concepts. So if you've ever wondered why it is that late-night talk show hosts always tell you that they've got a great show for you tonight, the answer is because as soon as you've contemplated the possibility that this show is great, it is going to feel better to you than it would have otherwise. It doesn't matter that you know they say that every night. It doesn't matter that I just taught you about anchoring. It will still work. Telling you that it's going to be a great show is going to make it a better show. By the way, this is going to be a great talk. <laughs> uh, so we also experience anchoring from comparisons. In my opinion, comparison-based anchoring is probably the most important for product managers. Basically speaking, we have no concept of the absolute. Your brain has no idea what $10 is. It has no idea what 50 degrees is. It has no idea what 5 points is. What it does know is which thing is bigger than what and which thing is smaller than what. It's very good at comparisons. Your audience is essentially always comparison shopping, which means when you're thinking about how to teach them how to feel about an option, you should be thinking about teaching them about how to compare various options. So this particular effect was first measured by Dan Ariely. He's an economist uh, from the book Predictably Irrational. And he noticed that The Economist was offering three options for subscribing to its uh, uh, publication. A web-only subscription for 59, a print-only subscription for 125, or a web and print subscription for 125. Now, you are all bright people, and so you are all, no doubt, noticing that it would be silly to purchase the print edition for 125 when you could have the web and print edition for the same price. It is a strictly worse option. So why did The Economist include it? Asked Dan Ariely. So he tested it. He tested it both with that option, which is obviously bad, and on the left side, without the option, which is obviously bad. Now, you'll notice in both pie graphs, there's only two colors. Nobody was fooled into taking the terrible option. But the presence of the terrible option did drastically affect how people thought about the most expensive option. The presence of the print option anchored the value of print by itself at $125, which means when you compare it to web and print, web and print looks better. The presence of that terrible option improved how people felt about the option that was present in both categories. Slightly over half of people in this experiment were, able, were convinced to choose a more expensive option merely by the presence of a terrible one. The way that Dan Ariely recommends that you apply this advice in real life is when you're going out to the bar to try and meet someone, 
Bring a friend who's a lot like you, but a little worse. <laughs> the fact that they're similar to you will make comparisons easy, and the fact that they're worse than you will make those comparisons flattering. Make sure you do the same thing for your arguments or for any options you're trying to get your audience excited about choosing. They will be comparing things. So if you don't offer them comparisons, they're going to bring comparisons of their own, and they might not be the comparisons that you'd be excited for them to be making. Representation. So representation is a subtle one. Representation is our tendency to think about things in pictures rather than in math. Generally speaking, we don't do math. In particular, we don't do set math ever. So this original experiment was done with broken plates and not with broken iPhones, so take it with a grain of salt, but it's actually very difficult to get a photo of the same plate broken and not, whereas with iPhones it was easy. So uh, this was done in the University of Chicago, and the professor in question asked people to evaluate what they thought two sets of dishes were worth. One set of dishes had nothing but unbroken dishes, and then the other set had all the unbroken dishes in the first set, a few more unbroken dishes, and then a few broken dishes. So set B has more stuff that is unbroken, but it also has some broken stuff. Now, when you ask people to evaluate these two sets together, they're smart enough to see that set A is a strict subset of set B, and so set B must be worth more than set A. But when you ask people to evaluate them separately without giving them the comparison, they put a higher value on set A than set B. And the reason is, when people are trying to evaluate set A and B, they're not adding up the individual value of all the components. That's math. Nobody likes math. What they're doing instead is they're kind of picturing what the average thing in the set is, and then evaluating how that average thing feels. The average thing in set A is much better than the average thing in set B. The broken things in set B are dragging down the representative image, which is dragging down how people value the overall set. Now, for the purposes of making a persuasive argument, what that means is you should stick to your highlight reel. If you add one more argument that's like, eh, okay, not as good as your first couple arguments, but still technically good, you're actually weakening your earlier arguments because people aren't remembering the sum total of your arguments. They're remembering the average of your arguments. Your audience is going to be sampling essentially at random from your perspective from the things that you say. They won't remember everything. They'll only remember a subset. And unless that subset is exclusively the highlight reel, it's going to detract. Another way to think about this is, if I give you one excuse for why I can't make your party, you're going to believe my one excuse. But if I give you four excuses for why I can't make your party, I'm lying, I just don't want to go to your party. The same thing is true of arguments. When you make one strong argument or two strong arguments, you display confidence that those arguments are actually convincing. If you keep piling on weaker and weaker arguments, you're telling your audience that you don't think they're convinced yet, and they will believe you. Coherence is our desire for the world to be consistent and to make sense. So we would like for brave people to be brave, smart people to be smart, good ideas to be good, bad ideas to be bad. A world that is consistent is a world that is easier to reason about. It is literally takes less of your brain power to uh, model when you're trying to predict things. So your brain is always subtly trying to make the world more consistent than it actually is. The most common aspect of this is known as halo effect. Halo effect is our tendency for how we feel about something to affect how we feel about all aspects of that thing. So if you think a person is funny, you probably also think they're smart and kind. If you think an idea is bad, you also probably think it's expensive and risky. Generally speaking, your valence on an idea sort of affects all aspects of it. When in reality, most people are complex, most ideas are complex. You usually have some good aspects and some bad aspects, but that's literally more complicated to deal with, and so your brain avoids it. Now, this is true at a macro level, which is usually where we all talk about it, 
But I want to kind of emphasize to you that this is not only happening at a macro level. This is actually happening at a micro level all the time in your brains as a way of constantly smoothing out the universe to make it simpler. And an easy way to observe that in yourself is to consider how weird this sentence is. Hitler loved puppies. So the reason that Hitler is a demonic historical figure doesn't particularly relate to dogs. So there's no particular reason that you should have an impression about how Hitler feels about dogs. And actually, for the record, he did love dogs. Specifically German shepherds, go figure. So, in any case, the reason that this sentence is so uncomfortable is because, from your brain's perspective, reconciling the notion of kindness to a small animal with history's greatest monster is extremely difficult. Your brain doesn't like conflicts. It would prefer a world in which Hitler was Hitler in all aspects. It's doing that all the time with every individual idea that you face. There's a more subtle and, in my opinion, more pernicious aspect to Halo Effect that people don't talk about as much, which is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is your desire to believe that you have always been the smart, capable, and well-intentioned protagonist of your story. So you don't like the notion that you previously made mistakes or previously did something that wasn't as sort of high-minded as you think of yourself as being. And so you have a tendency to act in order to reinforce your past beliefs and decisions as having always been right. The reason that this is happening is because reckoning with a world in which you can both be the protagonist of your story and have shortcomings is literally difficult intellectually. It requires more brain power. So when somebody comes to you with a severe case of confirmation bias, have some sympathy for them because it's not necessarily a sort of arrogance that's driving this. In many ways, it's about the literal difficulty of that intellectual act. It's like asking someone to solve a calculus problem. So the important thing to remember for the purposes of persuasion is Generally speaking, if in order to agree with you, a person has to admit they were wrong, you've chosen the hardest possible path to getting them to agree with you. Admitting that you were wrong in the past is the most difficult kind of changing your mind. All right, so one last bias before we get into how to actually apply these in everyday life. Framing is our tendency to react differently to the same question, decision, or information, depending on the context in which it's presented to you. So in 2006... France lost and Italy won the World Cup at the same time. Those were the same event. From a computer's perspective, those two pieces of information are logically interchangeable. But you're not a computer, you're a human, and humans are associative machines, which means that you will experience these two messages very differently. If you look at the image on the left, you'll be filled with images of France and of loss. If you look at the image on the right, you'll be filled with images of Italy and of victory. Even though those two things are the same thing in this context, you experience them differently because of how they are framed. The most important and interesting form of framing for our purposes today is framing what's normal or default. Deviating away from the normal is more effortful and riskier, and we experience more regret as a result of it when it goes wrong. So generally speaking, people have an extremely strong preference to do the normal thing, do the default. And an easy way to see this is in organ donation consent rates. So uh, the gold countries are countries where to donate your organs you have to check a box to opt in. And the blue countries are countries where you will donate your organs unless you check a box. So it's opt out. And as you can see, even in a decision that's as profoundly personal and high stakes as whether or not to donate your organs after your death, the vast majority of people are entirely content to let the form tell them what's normal and then do the normal thing. So when you're presenting options to your audience, you want to make sure that you claim the default because the default has an enormous advantage over anything that requires action from your audience. And a lot of the times, the default is something that people are taking for granted on the basis of whatever the person talking to them describes it. 
you know, it's the form that's telling people what's normal as far as organ donation. They're just taking that as red. It's not a cultural norm of the country. Okay, so whirlwind psychology 101, but none of that is actually directly applicable to being a product manager. Being a product manager, you're going to need to constantly be persuading a large group of stubborn and intelligent people to believe the same thing as you. So how can you actually do that in practice? Well, I got seven tips for you guys, and the first one is very simple. Keep it simple. The easier your message is to remember, the more likely they are to believe it, and the shorter it is, the less likely they are to invoke system two in trying to evaluate it. You want to make sure you stick to your highlight reel. Every additional argument you add is affecting the average, not the total, so make sure that it's part of the highlight reel. If you're adding in weaker arguments, you're literally weakening your stronger ones. More subtly, but in my opinion, more importantly, you want to make sure that for any message, any argument that you're making to an audience, that that argument has a paragraph summary in your mind, and that at any given moment, you are only addressing one sentence in that paragraph summary. You want to be going one thesis at a time. Don't hit multiple parts of your argument at once, because your audience won't have a mental map of where you are. And when they get confused, they'll activate system two to figure out where they are. They'll get nervous, they'll become more skeptical. The more that people already know where they are in your argument, the less likely they will be spending their cycles doubting you. Never surprise anyone. This is one that I see a lot of. A lot of people, especially because of the way in which persuasion is presented in, in cinema or in television shows, they assume that it's this kind of dramatic culminating moment where the protagonist leaps out in front of the mob and gives an impassioned speech and then everyone puts their pitchforks down and they're like, wow, that was so right. But actually, that's not how persuasion works in real life. If you think about it, somebody persuading you of something really large really quickly is likely to make you suspicious. You're likely to get really skeptical that they're trying to pull one over on you. People don't like being persuaded really sharply because it feels like being manipulated. You feel out of control, and when you feel out of control, you're less likely to feel comfortable, which means you're more likely to activate system two and carefully scrutinize all of the arguments. Rather than surprising people, you should try and introduce ideas the way that you would introduce cats. You sort of want them to smell each other before they ever see each other. And then you want them to see each other before they can ever interact with each other. And then you want to interact in this very calm, quiet, sort of secure way. So if you've got a controversial idea that you want to persuade your team to do, start by telling everyone that next quarter you plan to announce a controversial idea. And then every so often just be like, in a bit, I'm going to talk about this controversial idea. And then go have one-on-one -on -one meetings with everyone that matters and make sure that they know that you're going to make the case for a controversial idea, but don't make the case. Just let them know that you're going to. The more that they encounter the idea before the moment when you ask them to have an opinion about it, the less like a scary bug your idea will be and the more like a familiar backyard bug it will be. You also want to make it really easy to agree. There's two important ways in which this comes up. One, the default outcome should be yours. If you are writing a persuasive email... Make sure that you structure it in such a way that if nobody replies to your email, the outcome is what you hoped for. Don't say, should we ship the widgets? Say, unless anyone objects, we're going to ship the widgets. Put the onus of action on the people who disagree with you, not on the people who agree with you, right? Also, and this is a little bit more subtle, a lot of times we're tempted to leave behind open questions as a way of sort of giving option value to the audience. So you might say to yourself, I don't care if the widgets are red or green, I'll let the audience decide, and then they can have their favorite widget color, which sort of makes sense. But the problem is that when you tell your audience that the widgets can be either red or green, you're making it harder to picture the widgets. You're basically leaving behind a problem, a word problem, for your audience to solve. First, you have to solve which of red or green you prefer, and then you have to solve for how much you like 
the red or green widget that you happen to prefer. That additional effort of deciding what color they like is actually going to deteriorate how comfortable they are with your overall outcome. So generally speaking, you're better off choosing red or green and then letting your audience know that if they didn't like your choice, they can push back on it. So don't say, we can, shoot, we can ship either red or green widgets. Say, we're going to ship green widgets, but red is an option if you like. That will make it easy for your audience to picture what's going to happen, which will make it easy for them to get comfortable with it. So I kind of alluded to this already when we were talking about anchoring. Generally speaking, your audience is always comparison shopping. You are, uh, at any given time, going to be comparing whatever option that you want to sell them on to other options. If you don't give them comparisons, they will find them yourself, find them themselves. This is affecting system one, which means it's a very intuitive kind of thing, which means that small differences in how easy or hard those comparisons are will make a big difference in how impactful they are. If you want a comparison to be obvious, put it on the same slide. If you want it to not be obvious, put it at opposite ends of the document. That really will make a difference because it's only your intuitions that are being affected by this. Next, you want to make sure you argue as little as possible. Every time you disagree with your audience, it is functionally a display advertisement for you being dumb. Remember, they think of themselves as being smart, and they think of that as a base premise. So make sure you disagree with them as minimally as you possibly can, because there's two ways for them to solve that disagreement. An effortful way where they change their mind, or an effortless way where they dismiss you as not being a good source of information. So don't be distracted by arguing about things that no longer matter. You don't want to argue about whether or not we should have shipped the widgets in order to convince someone that we should ship the widgets today. So similarly, you don't want to argue forwards, not backwards. It's much easier to argue that new information will change things than it is to argue that past assessments of things were wrong. Argue that we should do something in the future, not that we should have done something in the past. Finally, and this will be my last tip for you guys today, you want to play the long game. Generally speaking, all the people that you are trying to persuade in a work context are people that matter much more than the decision that you're trying to persuade them over. So if there's something that they care much more about than you, or if there's something where they have a lot of insight that maybe you don't necessarily understand, be prepared to be persuaded. Because generally speaking, if they believe that you are cooperating with them, they'll be more willing to listen to you the next time that it comes along. Cool.